Nehemiah chapter number nine two weeks ago. Uh, Pastor Jacob taught from chapter eight, and we looked about how we looked at how as as the people gathered and the word of God was read for hours and hours. The word of God was read. It was explained. It was expounded upon. And there was this overwhelming sense of conviction that the word of God brought to the people. And we saw like just this great, really reviving that took place. They, they gathered for a, a six-hour six service. So they gathered together. This is the word of God being read and explained. And, you know, I mean, imagine that. Like, you know, when, when I'm pushing like an hour for a service time. People get nervous. Like man. You know. Got to get going. We got something. Six hours they gathered together. And, and the word of God was read. The word of God was explained. And they responded. And we saw how that the true worship of God. That submission to God's word. Brought joy to the people of God. So now God's people are, are the, the Jews. They're going to come now. They're going to reconvene. And now they're going to come together. And it's going to be a time where they're going to grieve and repent over their sin. And we see this revival that takes place. This prayer that they're going to pray. That the, the spiritual leaders are leading them in. And tradition says that, that Ezra was probably the one to pray this prayer. And we see that this great revival that's going to take place starts with the people recognizing who God is and recognizing who they are. And for a revival to take place in our lives, in our church, that's where it begins. It begins with a proper and right view of just who God is and who we are before God. I think many times that we maybe don't take our sin that serious because we don't have a proper view of who God is. We don't have a proper view of just the holiness of God. And so we tend to think that our sin's not that big of a deal. That our sin, we, we justify it, we rationalize it, we diminish it, we excuse it, we shift blame. Because we don't have a proper view of the holiness of God. But what we're going to see is not only is God holy and righteous and all-powerful, but he is a relational God who cares for every one of us, who loves every one of us, who is faithful to every one of us even when we are not faithful to him. And they're going to dig really, really deep into their history and see that their ancestors were not faithful to God. That God made a covenant with them. And they were not faithful to keep that covenant. But God was always faithful to them. We see in verse number 1 now on the 20 and 4th day of this month. The children of Israel were assembled with fasting. With sackcloth and, and earth or ashes on, uh, upon them. So this is now a sign of great humility. They've heard the word of God explained. They've heard, they've read the word of God. And there's this great conviction now over sin. And their response is that they are going to, to, to fast. They're going to go without food. They're going to put sackcloth. And they're going to put ashes on their head. They're coming at this with a great posture of humility. This is saying, God, 
we are sinners. This sackcloth would be like some kind of burlap sack with goat's hair. It would be very, very uncomfortable. And what this is symbolizing is this. They're saying we are no longer comfortable in our sin. We are no longer complacent with how we have been living. They would put ashes upon their head. This was symbolic of how really, how recognizing how dirty and corrupt their hearts were before a holy God. And as they gathered together, they are recognizing who God is. They are grieving and repenting over their sin. And not just their sin, but they're acknowledging that their fathers and their father's fathers and their aunts, they have all sinned. They're recognizing that they have followed in that same path. Right? So they're not saying that they're necessarily to blame and it's their fault for something another generation did, but they are acknowledging that the, the, the previous generations have sinned and acknowledging that they have followed in that same path. And don't we all do the same thing? We look back upon God's people and we see their unfaithfulness to him. But can we be honest? That's a story for every one of us. We are not faithful. God blesses us. God is a good, gracious, loving, forgiving God. And we are not faithful to him. Now we should be, but we fail him. But what we're going to see is God's unwavering faithfulness to his people. But we see this humility of coming before him. They're fasting. They're wearing sackcloth and they're putting ashes upon their head. It says, And the seed of Israel separated themselves from all strangers, and they stood and confessed their sin and the iniquity of their fathers. So they're separating uh, from those in the land that aren't, uh, that aren't Jews, and they're saying, listen, we are owning this. This is our sin. We have to deal with this sin. They're so convicted and broken over their sin. See, they're dealing with that. See, they're, they're not just, they don't have this, this excuse and victim mentality of, of, of why they've sinned and why they haven't been faithful. They're saying, no, we are owning this. This is on us. We're not going to excuse it. We're not going to belittle it. We're going to truly own it. And God's people are taking responsibility. Yes, they're confessing. Their father sin and acknowledging that, but they're saying we have followed in this same path. See, sin is both generational, but it's also personal. And what people have done maybe in the past have maybe put you in a spot where it's easier to sin, but you and I are still responsi responsible for our sin. Now, as we, and today even with this dedication for McKinsey, like may it in our minds as parents or grandparents be uh, really cautious and may we be really aware of the fact that what we do can have an effect upon our children, can have an effect upon our, our grandchildren, and that can influence them. But ultimately, they are responsible for their actions and sin. But that doesn't mean that we just brush that off and not recognize our responsibility as parents and grandparents, our responsibility to the next generation. But they are coming together. They're confessing. 
to confess. The root word means to throw or cast off. They're saying we are acknowledging our sin and we are going to forsake the sin. See, revival in our life comes, it starts when we're disgusted with our own sin. Part of the sanctification of God making us who we should be, of us becoming more and more like our Heavenly Father, us becoming more and more like Christ, is that we have a, a, a hatred for our own sin, a disgust for our own sin. Now, we're in a fallen world. We are sinners who've been saved, but we are, we are, are constantly being sanctified. And this side of eternity, we are always going to struggle with sin and temptations. From within our own flesh and desires, from the temptation that, that, that Satan brings from without. We're in a fallen world and we're always going to struggle with sin. But part of that sanctification in our life is, is that we loathe that sin. That we're fighting that sin. We're recognizing it in our life and asking God to change us. And here's the thing. May we have that, that, that disgust for our own sin as much as we have that disgust for other people's sin. Amen? Because like it's easy to see someone else's sin and just abhor it and hate it. But how about the sin in our own life? How about our, our own struggles? And, and I've said this before, but it's, I think for us, it's, it's easier to be merciful towards people when we recognize how much mercy we need and how much mercy that we have received. And may we have this mentality of owning our sin, of, of repenting of our sin, of confessing that sin instead of excusing it, instead of belittling it. For some of you, maybe that sin in your life that you deal with, maybe it's with an addiction, with certain substances. Maybe it's a sexual addiction that's outside of God's boundaries. Maybe it's just things that you saw, you experienced growing up. And today is the day to break that generational curse of recognizing that, yes, I was influenced by these things, but I'm responsible for them. I am responsible for my own sin. God's people are gathering. They're repenting. It says, they, verse number three, they stood up in their place and they read in the book of the law of the Lord their God. One fourth part of the day and another four, fourth part, they confessed and worshiped the Lord their God. So this is not just a, a quick gathering. They're coming together. This is going to be an all day event. They're coming. They're not rushed. Why? Because God is dealing with their hearts. And all of the distractions and all of the other things mean so little because God is speaking to them. God is dealing with them. Verse number four, then stood upon the stairs the Levites, Jeshua and Bani and, and Gadmiel and Shebaniah and Bunai and, and Sherebiah and Bani and, and Chenani, and they cried with a loud voice unto the Lord their God. Then the Levites, Jeshua and Cadmiel and Bani, Hashabaniah, Sherebiah, Hodijah, Shabaniah, and Pariah said, Stand up and bless the Lord your God forever and ever. And blessed be thy glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing 
and praise. So now the, the Levites or the religious leaders, they're gathering. As I mentioned, tradition says that Ezra uh, was with them and part of this and perhaps the one that prayed uh, much of this prayer. But what we see is one of the longest prayers recorded in all of Scripture. And this prayer is going to reveal a lot about their theology, about what they believe about God. You know, when you listen to someone pray, it reveals a lot of things about them. Reveals a lot of things about us. What we think of God. What we know about God. Well, this prayer is going to do the same thing. It's going to reveal really their view of, of God. And we see this amazing prayer uh, that they are going to pray. One of the longest recorded prayers. First, they're recognizing this. That God is eternal. It says, bless the Lord your God forever and ever. Blessed be thy glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. Thou, even thou, art Lord alone. Thou hast made a heaven and, and thou hast made heaven, the heaven of heavens with all their hosts and the earth and all things that are therein, the seas and all that is therein and preservest them all and the hosts of heaven worship thee. See, we see this, that they recognize that God, they recognize that God was eternal. I mean, just that thought alone should humble us. Our, our finite minds can't even wrap our head around something like that. That God is eternal. That God never began to exist. That God exists outside of time, space, and material. He is the one that created time, space, and material. He is an eternal God. And not only that, but he is the creator of all things. Everything belongs to him. He created all. Before anything, God was. Everything is sustained by him. Everything belongs to him. Everything is ruled by him. Everything will return to him. Everything will be judged by him. He is the eternal God. He is the God that created all. What an amazing concept. What a, a humbling thing. Us as his creatures. To think that God is the creator of all. But not only did God create all. But he is the sustainer of all. Colossians talks about this. That not only, not only did God create all things. But by him all things consist. All things are held together. You know how we as his creatures can assume things about this universe? You know how we can assume the laws that God imposed on this universe are going to be in effect today just like they were yesterday? But God sustains everything. The reason we can even do things like science. So sometimes you hear people, you know, they're kind of maybe mocking Christianity or mocking the Bible, mocking God. And they'll, they'll make comments like, well, we don't believe, we don't believe in this magical stuff. We just believe in science. 
You know, the only worldview that even makes sense to do science is a worldview where we have a creator who not only created all things, but by, all, by him holds all things together. All science is based on something called induction, right? You're assuming the future is going to be like the past. But in a random universe where there's no personal governance or guidance, how do you do science? And the answer is blind faith. It's blind faith. But that's not how a Christian operates. Yes, we have faith, but it's faith that God created all things and that we can do science, that, we can, that, we, that there's certain laws that God has imposed on the universe that are going to be in operation tomorrow, just like they were today. And here they recognize not only did God create all things, but he is the sustainer of all things. And here's where it gets personal, that God created you and me. And that God will sustain you. God will sustain me. That our future is held in his hands. That God has a future for every one of us. God knows the very number of hairs on our head. God controls our future, our destiny. He knows and he has a plan for you and for me. Now, if you're like me, you can stress and worry about the future. We can worry about what's the outcome going to be. We stress about things that are completely out of our hands and out of our control. But as a believer in God who created us, may we also remember he sustains us. That no matter what the future, how bleak it might seem to you right now, no matter how uncertain it might seem to you right now, that you have a God who not only created you, but he sustained you and that nothing can touch you unless it's filtered through God's hand. That doesn't mean that we're not going to face difficult days. In fact, it may just be that God's will for you and me and part of his sanctification process of our life, that we have some bumpy roads, that we face a lot of trials, that we face adversity, that we face hard times and difficult times, but we can rest assured it's all filtered through God's hands. And God has a glorious purpose for you and for me. Not an easy road, but a glorious road, a meaningful road. And here in this prayer, they are recognizing that not only is God eternal, but that God is the creator of all. He is the sustainer of all. It says, verse 6, Thou, even thou, art Lord alone, that God is unique. There is no one like our God. There is no other God. There is no other Savior. No one comes alongside of him. No one is above him. That he is above all. And when we start to worry, we start to fret, when we start to panic, Look up and start worshiping God and recognizing just who our God is. He's the cre creator, the sustainer of all. It says that the host of, of, of heaven, they worship him. That right now in heaven, there are angelic beings, the whole heavenly host of angels and other angelic beings that the, the scripture makes reference to. They're angelic beings that are are worshiping around the throne. The saints in heaven, your loved ones, my loved ones that knew the Lord, that have passed away, they are in his presence in heaven, worshiping him. 
We as a church, we gather collectively every single week. And you know what we do when we sing? We are offering praise. We are offering worship to God. And I love the wording in Ephesians where Paul talks about when we are praying and worshiping God, that we are joining all of the saints, both in heaven and on earth, in worship and praise to our God. That all of heaven worships him. A host of angelic beings are worshiping him right now. That we should worship him right now. That it's not, well, one day when we get to heaven. No, we worship him now. We worship him through song. We worship him through giving and sacrificing and loving and serving his church right now. Worshiping him. Why? Because he alone, he alone is worthy of that worship. Verse number seven, it says, thou art the Lord, the God who didst choose Abram and brought him, brought him forth out of Ur of the Chaldees and gave us him the name of Abraham and found us his heart faithful before thee and made us a covenant with him to give the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites and the, the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Jebusites and the Girgashites to give it. I say to his seed and hath performed thy word for thou art righteous. So not only is God uh, powerful, unique, the creator, the sustainer of all, but he is a personal God who made a covenant with Abraham. Into Abraham's seed, he made a promise to Abraham. He made a promise to him. And what we see is this. We're going to see now this next section of of, of scripture that God's people were not faithful to him that God's people abandoned him God's people chased after other gods and then God sent prophets to them to preach to them and they got angry when they heard the truth from these prophets but yet God is not just a covenant maker he's not just a promise maker he's a promise keeper that God will never go back upon his word. What gives us confidence of all the promises that we as his believers and followers have? What gives us confidence that God will fulfill all of those things? What gives us the confidence that we have a glorious, bright future for every one of us who know the Lord? The confidence is we see that God has always been faithful to his people. That my salvation is not up to me. That it is, it is by his grace, by his power. That when I trusted Christ, when you trusted Christ, that you know this, that God saved you and sealed you and God will keep his promise. If my salvation is up to me, I'm doomed. I will fail. I promise you, I will never make it. But it is up to him, God, who has saved me and his spirit that has sealed me and we know that God keeps his covenant. He is a, a promise maker, but also a promise keeper. Abraham was given a promise. We see Abraham wasn't always faithful to God. In fact, Abraham and Sarah didn't trust God. And they took matters into their own hands. They weren't, ha they weren't having children. And so what happened? Abraham, Abraham has a relationship with their handmaid. And Hagar, and then Ishmael's born. 
Much of the conflict we see to this very day is a result of them not trusting God, not being faithful to God. Much of the conflict that breaks our hearts right now in the Middle East is really a result that goes all the way back to Isaac and Ishmael. And may I say this, no matter your theological view, I personally believe that God has a place and plan still for Israel. Now, some would say, no, the church has replaced Israel. Look, regardless of your view on that, may we all just say it's heartbreaking what's happening, that innocent people are being, are, are being killed, and that should break our hearts. And we should pray for the peace, for the safety of those over there that are, are being harmed. And may we have a heart that's broken for that. But we see even though, even though Abraham didn't trust God at times, God was always faithful. That God always kept his covenant. Verses 9 through 15, it says, I did see the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard us their cry by the Red Sea. It says, it says you showed signs and wonders upon Pharaoh and all his servants and on all the people of this land. For thou knewest that they dealt profoundly against them. So didst thou get thee a name as it is this day. And thou didst divide the sea, this great miracle of when God parted the Red Sea, so that they went through the midst of the sea on the dry land. Their persecutors thou threwest into the, the deep as a stone into the mighty waters. Moreover, thou leddest them in, in the day by a cloudy pillar, and in the night by a pillar of fire, to give them light in the way wherein they should go. Thou camest down upon Mount Sinai, spake, spakest to them from the heavens, and gave them right judgments and true laws and good statutes and commandments, and madest known unto them the, thy holy Sabbath, and commandest them precepts and statutes and laws by the hand of Moses, thy servant. Thou gavest them bread from heaven for their hunger, brought forth water from the rock for their thirst, and promised that they should go in to possess the land which thou hast sworn to give them reminding that now they're or they're in this prayer they're being reminded of God's faithfulness to them even when they doubted God even when God led them out of Egypt and and, and they saw this great miracle of the Red Sea parting and and how God uh, allowed them to walk on dry land but yet in the wilderness they doubted God they they didn't believe they didn't have the faith and so they wandered in the wilderness but yet even in their disobedience we see God's provision. Even in their disobedience, we see God's love for them. Now, that doesn't mean there weren't consequences. For us today, when we doubt God, we don't follow God. We live in this fallen world, and sometimes, and maybe today you find yourself in a really bad spot, or you find yourself in a discouraging place, perhaps because of your own sin, perhaps because of your own foolish choices. And so God loving us and forgiving us doesn't mean that we escape some of the consequences here and now for that sin. But what we can be assured of is that God is still faithful. That even though maybe we have failed, even though we haven't been faithful to him, even though we may be living with some of those consequences of that, we see God is still faithful. That God still provided for them, that God still brought water from a rock and manna down from heaven. We see the faithfulness of God. We see God's provision for them. Maybe 
today you find yourself in a, a discouraging place. You feel like you failed God too much. You feel like the things you've done, the unfaithfulness to God, the sin you've done is that God has just forgotten about you. But that's not the case. That if we will truly, like God's people here, will acknowledge our sin, repent of our sin, come to God with a, a heart that is agreeing with him about our own sin, we'll find that there is a path and road of redemption that God will never abandon us, that God continued to guide them. And maybe you just need to be reminded of that. Others may abandon you and forsake you because of your sin and mistakes, but God will never forsake you. That you can come to him. Verse 17 talks about how that, that God was gracious, ready to pardon. He was merciful, slow to anger, but thou art a God ready to pardon, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, forsookest thou not. God, who is all holy and all righteous and all powerful, but yet he is slow to anger. Let that sink in. Because when people wrong us, we're usually pretty quick to anger. We're usually pretty quick to, to get upset, to want to retaliate. But a God who is all holy, who is without sin, who is all powerful... Yet we see this truth that he is a God that is patient, a God that is slow to anger. In verses 22 through 31, we see how this cycle continues. And they're referencing to the book of Judges when, when, when they're, they're, they're taken, uh, where they're oppressed and they're taken captive and, and all of these things happen. And then God sends deliverance. And what happens? Then God's people become complacent again. See, this prayer of confession is like, God, our forefathers forsook you, abandoned you, didn't follow you. And we're pursuing that same cycle, that same course. You see that in the book of Judges where, where God's people cry out for deliverance. God hears their cry. God is merciful. God is gracious. God delivers them. And then what happens? They become complacent. They forget God. And then we see that bondage that comes again. That cycle is repeated. And may we not look down upon them in judgment. May we recognize that's the same for a lot of us. When good times come, when, when, when we see blessings and we experiencing some of those physical blessings, we can become complacent. We cannot trust God. We cannot worship God. We cannot acknowledge God. And then difficulties come and we cry to God and God is gracious and God is merciful. God hears the cries of his people. We see that in verses 22 through 31. Verse uh, 32 it says, or verse 31, Nevertheless, for thy great mercy's sake, thou didst not utterly consume them or forsake them. For thou art, here it is again, a gracious and merciful God. Now, therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, the terrible, or the awesome God, who keepest covenant and mercy 
Let not all the trouble seem little before thee, that thou come upon us on our kings and on our princes and our priests and our prophets and our fathers and on all thy people since the time of the kings of Assyria unto this day. Howbeit thou art just in all that is brought upon us, for thou hast done right, we have done wickedly. Once again, they are acknowledging their sin. They're agreeing with God about their sin. They're saying, look, those consequences that you brought for our sin was just. It's what we deserved. A lot of times when we face the consequences of our actions, it can make us more angry. It can make us more bitter. But once again, part of that path of redemption is us dealing with the consequences that God brings in our life. That God brings those consequences. Here's the thing, for a, a believer, he brings those consequences to bring us back to him. Hebrews talks about that, that, that sometimes God, our Heavenly Father, will correct us or discipline us, not out of anger, not the, not the angry God with the Thor hammer coming down on us. No, the loving father or the loving mother that corrects or disciplines our children out of love. Not out of anger, but to correct the behavior. Why? Because we truly care about our kids. And, and, and as parents, like, no, do your kids like the boundaries you have? No, of course not. But you have those boundaries because you care about them. You love them. And the same is true with our Heavenly Father. And, and look, part of revival in our life, part of redemption when we have sinned, is us agreeing with God about the consequences. God, you were right in that. But yet what we see is that even though there's consequences, that we have a merciful, loving God that's not going to consume us and destroy us, won't abandon us, and forsake us. Now, by the way, that doesn't mean that every difficulty you're going through is God punishing you. Look, sometimes, sometimes it's just God's brought you, is bringing you through that refining fire to sanctify you, to make you more like him. It's not that God's punishing you for sin that you've done, but sometimes it is. Sometimes that refining fire, sometimes, sometimes that adversity is because we're running from God. We're abandoning God. And God's saying, look, I got to get your attention. So I'm going to bring these things in your life so you'll come back to me. And ultimately, though, it's God's going to deal with you and me about those things. Like, I've never one time wondered, like, okay, well, God, why are you doing? Like, I know if I'm not following God or if I'm abandoning God or not, or just just being distracted from following him and worshiping him like I should, God will bring things out of love to bring my focus back on him. And we have to recognize that. And God's people here, they're in this prayer recognizing God. You did bring judgment upon our fathers and our, our grandfathers, but God, we deserved it. Verse 34, neither have our kings, our princes, our priests, our fathers keep thy law. He's saying, look, political, spiritual, we have abandoned God. We have not followed you. It says that we didn't hearken, we didn't listen to your commandments and your testimonies, for they have not served thee in their kingdom and in the great goodness that thou gavest them in, in large and the fat of the land which thou gave them before them. Neither turned they from their wicked works. 
Behold, we are servants this day, and for the land that thou gavest unto our fathers to eat the fruit thereof and the good thereof, we are servants in it, and it yieldeth much increase unto the kings whom thou hast set over us because of our sins. Thank God all of these things happened because we sinned, because we abandoned you, because we didn't follow you. And it says that we're in great distress, and because of all this, we make a sure covenant and write it, and our princes and Levites and priests seal unto it. We'll pick up kind of on that same thought about more of their response next week in chapter 10. The reality here we see through this prayer that they are recognizing who God is and who they are. And this causes them to repent. This causes them to confess their sin, to acknowledge they have forsaken God. They have abandoned the one true God. God has not broken his covenant and promise, but they have. And for us, what does that mean? What do we learn from this? What do we get out of this prayer that's recorded here from God's people thousands of years ago? Well, not much has changed. We as God's people, we, don't, we are not faithful to him all the time. We fail. We sin. But yet, may when we see and read God's word, we as his believers, the spirit of God dwells in us and convicts us of sin and shows us when we err and, and stray from God. May we not diminish and belittle and justify our sin, but may we agree with God about our sin. May we confess that sin. May we repent of that sin. See, sin isn't something to belittle, excuse, celebrate, justify. We need to repent of it. We need to acknowledge it before God and turn from it. That first step to redemption is repentance when God convicts us of it. When God convicts us of that sin, may we acknowledge it. May we repent of it. And may we recognize this. That we have a loving God, a loving Father that is quick to hear our prayer. He's quick to forgive our sin. Man, I find great comfort in this. Look, if you're here today and you're not a, a believer, I hope that you recognize the holiness and righteousness of God. That you, that you one day will stand before God and give an account but yet you don't have to stand before God in your sin because God came to us that Jesus Christ, who was God in the flesh, came and lived a righteous, perfect life that you and I could never live. He died in our place on a horrible Roman cross to pay for our sins. He rose again on the third day, proving he was God and overcoming sin and death. And that all who will come to him and repent and trust and believe that Jesus Christ is the Savior. He is your Savior. He is my Savior. That we will find forgiveness. We will find redemption. But one thing all of us have in common is that we're sinners and we fall short of God's glory. And we need a Savior. But we have a Savior in Jesus Christ. That none of us have to stand before God one day in our sin and face eternal judgment. Because Jesus Christ paid for our sin. And that we, if we will confess that sin and repent of that sin and turn to faith in Jesus Christ, 
we will have forgiveness. We will have redemption. And if you don't know Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, while you have the opportunity here in this life, turn to him, trust in him. Know that he is a loving God who will save you and redeem you. Let's pray.